Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. The following episode is a recording from the Slate Live Spoiler Specials taping. There were a few technical difficulties during the live show, but we hope you still enjoyed this discussion of the Hamilton movie. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Charlotte Green is people! No, I am the father of Rosebud. What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up! Damn you all to hell! Hello and welcome to a very special live episode of the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast. I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and tonight we're going to be spoiling Hamilton, or Hamil Film, the filmed version of the Broadway musical that is, as of last week, streaming on Disney+. Joining me from Slate are not one, not two, but three other great critics. I'll introduce them We have Sam Adams, who's a senior editor at Slate and the editor of our culture blog, Browbeat. We also have Rebecca. We need some technical help, guys. I can't hear anyone. I can hear Dana now. Can y'all hear me? Okay, hi, Rachel. Rachel, give me your title and where you're speaking from. Please help me. (laughs) I am speaking from Brooklyn, New York right now, the greatest city in the world. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was going to say, there's four of us tonight, but tomorrow there'll be more of us. Wait, and remind me of your title, it's like? I am a staff writer, so I forget that all the time. I write for the culture section and for other sections as well. <laughs> so I think the first thing I'm going to do, usually on these spoiler specials, I go around and ask for just your kind of basic thumbs up, thumbs down opinion first. I do want that, but I also want to hear just in a little thumbnail version, your history with Hamilton. Because I know, for example, that Rebecca's a newbie who just watched it today for the first time. Um, I know that also Rachel and Sam have some history with it. So let's go the opposite way. We'll start with you, Rachel. What's your history with Hamilton and how do you feel about the film? So I love Hamilton. I was obsessed with Hamilton. I was um, embarrassingly part of the Hamilton fandom on Tumblr for a little while back when I was still on Tumblr. Um, I first heard the cat soundtrack when I was studying abroad in France. So I was like, kind of looking for a little place to home. And I was like, oh my God, the American Revolution with people of color, I love to see it. And then I saw it on stage in Chicago um, in like 2016. Yeah, ever since then, my love has slightly diminished as I've matured as an adult, but that's my <laughs> Yeah, the question of to what degree Hamilton is a kid's show, I think is interesting to talk about. And I hope we touch on that at some point. And I don't mean that at all. I mean, but I just know my kid, for example, super into it. I bet that Sam's is as well, you know, and it does have this kind of pedagogical quality, which I think Rebecca will soon be harshing on (laughs) for our pleasure. (laughs) But maybe that's part of what has made it appeal to younger kids so much. Okay, Rebecca, what about you? You watched it today for the first time, correct? I did. I watched it today. I had heard the soundtrack a little bit um, way back in 2016. I don't know if Slate was the first, but we were one of the first to run like a critical piece about Hamilton. And that was a Q&A that I did with a historian named Lyra Montero. 
And the, it basically was an argument, I'm sure, I'm sure many of the parts of which we'll be unpacking and addressing tonight, which is about um, whether the show itself is actually progressive in the way that it seems to think it is, um, whether the, the, the casting is sort of like a trick that's the only interesting thing about the politics of it and that everything else is sort of, well, what you would call founders chic, like uh, just like love of founding fathers. And I was completely convinced when I did that Q&A <laughs> with Dr. Montero. And I said, yep, I agree. I never want to hear this. <laughs> I think it sounds terrible, like a terrible idea. And I sort of listened to the soundtrack a little bit. And then I was like, oh, this is corny. So that's the other thing is I thought it was kind of like pol like politically annoying that people seem to love it so much. And then I also thought it was corny. And then finally today, after what, five years of discourse, four, four years, five years of discourse around it and kind of seeing arguments about it banded back and forth and seeing all the good coverage Slate has done over, of it over the years. And I know many of my colleagues are fans of it. I watched it and, uh, well, I don't know. I still thought it was corny and kind of politically suspect. So, but we should, I have, I feel like I have many more things to say about that. You can address that yeah. later. And you're not also not a musicals person in general, I gather, right? No, like you're someone who's always visited musicals. Yeah. Although I know some bit. of those people, I live with somebody who doesn't usually like musicals and has a lot of discomfort with the bursting into song spontaneously. Whereas mm -hmm. I just wish life were like that every day. And, uh, and he loves Hamilton. So I don't think it's a okay. rule of thumb when we're there. Yeah. All right, Sam, your yeah. turn. I guess my initial introduction to Hamilton was this this like annoying thing at the public theater that my friends in New York kept tweeting about. And I was just like, okay, enough. Um, <laughs> then the album came out and it was the base of the soundtrack to my driving my, I guess then six year old daughter back and forth to school half an hour each way, like every day for a year. Uh, wow. Basically. And then it became the first, uh, it was the first show that I took her to when she was seven. Um, we saw it at the tail end of the run with the original cast. I now know because there are dates in the credits the day after they shot the movie. Like they, they shot it up till Tuesday night. We saw it the Wednesday matinee and the next day. So I love the show. I mean, I have it memorized. I think it is a great and complex work with flaws that it is strong enough to hold up to having them discussed. And then it's had a, you know, like a cataclysmic, um, in a good way, I guess, like profound effect on, on American theater. Um, it's just shaking things up in a really interesting way. And I think that's great. Sweet. Okay, well, Rebecca, since you felt like you had you had more to say on it, why don't we, um, why don't you say some of that right now? We can get the sort of the historical okay. critique out of the way up front. I feel like a lot, of, there was a lot of sort of um, historical critiques to be made that are like of the sort of more nitpicky variety and, I kind of don't care as much about those as about the question of like, this is a still a white, really white story. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I wonder what you guys think about that. I mean, and I, I, I read again, it's because I, have, I read so many critiques before I saw the thing. Right? right. So like, and I had even gone back and looked at, at some of the critiques again before I saw it today. And so I was looking for it and thinking about it. And even the parts of the story that seemed to be trying to make Hamilton into an underdog, which like in some senses he was, but you know, I mean the point that he's an immigrant who's like really trying really hard to get to the top, but he was an immigrant from one part of the colonies to another part of the colonies. Like it's not really the same. I don't know. There's a lot of sort of like a celebratory American success story to it that I feel like is uh, unearned by the actual history. And I just wonder Annette Gordon-Reed, the historian, said in one of the critiques that I reread this morning, if this was a cast of all white people, like, would this be an interesting show? And I think it's still, 
like it's obviously virtuosic in the way that it's put together and and written and executed. Even I, a musical theater fool, can see that. But it just bothers me. I don't know. What do you guys think? That resonates with me a lot. My first impression upon hearing it was like, as a 19-year-old Black kid in America, oh like, you don't really connect in any way, or at least I never connected in any way to like the founding mythos of this country. Like mm-hmm. it never felt like it included me. And so in a way, watching them rape been these people that we're so familiar with felt very progressive to me. I like it was kind of the first time I was like I saw myself in this history. And then as I got older and kind of got more familiar with not like not that I wasn't familiar, but I guess as I got older and just smarter, it just became very clear to me that it basically just allowed more people to have access to a myth. And so in a way, having access to that myth felt powerful when I was like 19, but as like a 24 year old now, I'm kind of just like, I understand the appeal and I kind of understand like why so many people connected with it, but it also just kind of traffics in so much of what we're tearing down right now. Like listening to it now and and hearing Christopher Johnson as Washington Mm -hmm. saying, the people are rioting, there's a difference. Right. And kind of in the moment we're in, there's just so much about it that just you're like, we're actively tearing down statues of these people. And yet I'm also obsessed with this play that kind of deifies them in this way and makes them mm. work in a very like surface level way. Like there are people in American history in that period who are progressive and who do kind of have the same kind of ideological standards that we're holding them to. Like the first person to die in the Revolutionary War, some say it's Crispus Attucks, who was indigenous and black. And so we don't see those people in history and we don't see them in Hamilton. And so the people we do see in Hamilton are like 21st century avatars of diversity. And that's not really what any kind of like decolonizing of history is supposed to be about really. Right. Yeah. Didn't Mike Pence go to see it like a couple of days after he got into office? Yeah, for example, like that's not threatening Mike Pence's vision of American history, but for example. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, but then, but then at the end of the um, at the end of the show, Brandon Dixon, who was I think playing Burr at the time, like came to the up at the stage and like told him off. Yeah, you know, so they, he was. I mean, I would say he was directly threatened by that, but he was directly confronted by the cast, you know, at the show and like and basically saying like, don't use your attendance at our show to kind of present yourself as something you're not, you're not some sort of like, whatever, like post-racial hipster, just because you like managed to talk your way into Hamilton. <laughs> um, one thing that was interesting for me, I saw the the screener of this, I, I think it was a few days before it actually arrived on Disney Plus and there was an introduction to it, which I was surprised didn't end up on Disney Plus. I guess it was just for press, but it was just, it was Lin-Manuel Miranda and uh, Thomas Kale who directed the stage production and the film you know, in their respective quarantines, you know, on headphones talking about it. You know, Lin-Manuel Miranda said two interesting things about that have really stuck with me. One is that, you know, this is originally going to be a theatrical release coming out in October of 2021. They're releasing it now because there are no movies, because In the Heights, which was supposed to be the big, you know, Hollywood blockbuster of his previous musical, has now been pushed to next summer. But another thing he said is, like, we can't gather right now. Like, those were her words. And I think that's really 
kind of a powerful idea to me that like so much of what's been taken from us right now is the ability to experience, you know, live theater or music or any kind of performance together in a public space, um, in a you know, physical proximity to other people. And the other thing he said is, and this just kind of went by, like he didn't make an emphatic point of it, but he said that he was, what, what he was proudest of with Hamilton is the opportunities that he was able to give to people. And, you know, one way to think of the show, um, and it doesn't answer the historical questions one way or the other, but is just as a sort of like huge floating jobs program for black and brown theater actors. You know, many of the people in this production, I mean, most of them like, were not, you know, stars when they were cast. Um, seeing in them this production, it's kind of impossible to believe that that wasn't the case. It's sort of impossible to believe five years after the show landed on Broadway that all of them aren't huge stars now. I mean, it, I, I, as a writer, I'm sort of selfishly grateful that the person who got the most fame and money out of this big production was the person who wrote it. But it is kind of bizarre that like Divi Diggs and Renee Lee Goldsberry are like on every TV show and in every movie until now. But I mean, that is... You know, I think you have to sort of factor in just its like real world effect on top of its significance, sort of a, you know, standalone, you know, work of musical theater in history. Yeah, I think the most progressive thing about Hamilton isn't necessarily its ideology, but it's like the actual, like the praxis of it to use an overused word right now. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm having a what did I miss moment over here? (laughs) Because when I tapped out... Rebecca was just starting to talk about, I mean, essentially kind of the whitewashing of the show, right? The, the fact that it, it uses the, the, the multiracial casting to sort of cover for its essentially conservative nature as a celebration of the founding fathers, right? That was basically yep. kind of your argument. I guess I'm just wondering, I heard that little bit as I was losing touch with you all, but I want to hear what the, the next round of talk was after that. Like, Rachel, I know you had something to say about the kind of colorblind casting idea and how that feels different now than when the show first aired. Yeah, definitely. As I said, when we were in the ether, when I first saw it, it felt very progressive to me because, I mean, just I don't have any connection to the founding fathers of America just because, I mean, they owned people who looked like me and were probably related to me in some way. And so I think when I first watched it, it felt progressive. The colorblind casting felt progressive in a way where I was like, I can see myself in like George Washington. But then four years later, as we're tearing down statues, people who like the founding fathers is kind of like, why do I necessarily want to feel a connection to George Washington and kind of what's left out of Hamilton that would have actually made it progressive? Like, it's kind of weird watching it back, hearing Hamilton kind of go after Jefferson for owning slaves when most of the people on that stage that they're representing own slaves. Like he married into a prominent slave owning family. Like those people are missing. Like the only time we really hear references like in cabinet battle and then when Tom Jefferson mentions Sally Hemings. And if you don't know who Sally Hemings is, just hear him say, Sally, can you go get this for me? And so I think the casting was great on like a fundamental practical level in terms of getting a lot of people who would otherwise have opportunities in the door in terms of actually being progressive in its like ideology. It doesn't necessarily hold up. There is like a third cabinet battle that was cut from the show, but it is, you know, mm-hmm. recorded. There's a demo online where like Hamilton directly goes about slavery and it's about, you know, the briefest compromise and, and sort of saying like, well, look, we'll deal with this, you know, in 1808 or whatever it is. Hamilton drops sort of an explicit like Sally Hemings just bomb and that like he really goes right after him for that. And it's 
Interesting to think that he thought that was important enough to write and then that he cut it from the show. That's um, really interesting. Maybe, yeah, maybe because yeah. it was too distracting or, you know, if you open up that Pandora's box, you kind of can't then not deal with that for the entire rest of the show. But that's, you know, worth factoring in. There's definitely a thing where Thomas Jefferson gets to carry the guilt of slavery for all of the founding fathers and like not just in Hamilton, but in a lot of like founding fathers conversations. So yeah, I don't know. There's, there's a way that like he becomes the bad one and it's just insufficient, but whatever. <laughs> right. I mean, this is the kind of the problem with the great man or evil man theory of history, right? Is that ultimately this story can't help but tell history through the point of view of people, individual people, their desires, their mm -hmm. mistakes. Uh, I think it does an incredible job at doing that. Like the characters in the play are extremely well-developed, especially for basically not talking and developing only through song and dance. But it does you know, make that fundamental attribution error of attributing history to individuals rather than you know, systems and movements. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Since three of the four of us have seen this as a show on stage, and I, mean, I, I didn't get a chance to do my two cents at the top, but I was actually, not to brag, lucky enough to see this twice on stage, once to um, to talk about it on the Slate Culture Gab Fest and to actually get to interview Debbie Diggs and, um, and Leslie Odom, which was fantastic. And then because I loved it so much, eventually we um, saved up so we could take my daughter to it and she loved it too and then became an obsession. Oh look, our producer Faith put up a picture so I can remember my golden times on stage with Leslie and David, my buddies. I really wish now that before I had talked to them, I had, um, I had I knew the show better. I had just seen it once at that point. I didn't know the cast album super well. I hadn't read the Ron Chernow biography it's based on, which I've now read. And I would have had so many more questions for them if I had known a bit more then. But I guess I wanted to maybe switch to talking about, since three of us have seen this as a, as a play, and then the other one of us doesn't like musicals in the first place, to talk about that transla translation from stage to screen and how you think that works. In other words, how does this function as a film? And you know, when you were watching it and looking at the choices that the director, Tommy Kale was the director, correct, of the, of the movie, um, yeah. who also directed the play on stage. When you looked at the, at the choices he had made, how did that make the play read differently for you? How do you think it might've been filmed differently or better or, or worse? I'll start with Sam. What do you think? You're a film critic. I mean, I, I think, you know, he did, I think it is a, a, you know, a better than serviceable capture of an obviously extraordinary performance. Um, I think I get the sense watching this, that, that Thomas Kale um, spent a lot of time watching Spike Lee's movie, Passing Strange, which is a similar kind of filming a Broadway musical sort of in situ in the theater you know, while it's happening. And I think that's like an incredible, I mean, I think Spike Lee is just an incredible director of performance films generally. And so I think he took a lot of inspiration from that and that is wise. Um, you know, it still has a kind of like PBS, like souped up PBS mm -hmm. great performances. It's nice that they like, yeah. the way they did it is they shot a Sunday matinee and a Tuesday evening performance live. And then they spent the day in between. I think they shot 13 or 16 numbers. They just brought the cameras on stage and did, you know, crane shots and close-ups and stuff like that. And that, Definitely that adds to it. And I, I, you do see a lot of, I was not particularly close to the stage when I saw it. So just being able to see the nuances of those performances and they're really not 
often when you get that close to a stage performance, people can look really bad. Like it's one of the reasons film theater often doesn't work because the performances are just, people are playing to the rafters. Everything just looks kind of oversized and goofy. And I guess maybe because the show is so stylized to begin with that like doesn't bother me too much. I mean, you're right up in Jonathan Grau's face as he's singing the King's three songs. I mean, he is like spewing saliva all over the lands, just like, geysers of spit flying from his face and it's still kind of amazing you're not like whoa buddy turn it down you know turn it down you know so just being able to see like the little exchanges between people there's some great sort of like david diggs smirks um he's particularly mm-hmm. playing a lot lafayette he's such a cocky son of a bitch as lindman Miranda plays hamilton especially in the first act he's also just a really kind of you know smug and like fond of himself so there's a lot of great little smirks and interactions and lots of little you know, the choreography is very dense and I feel like there are a lot of interactions that I can't imagine how many times you would actually have to see this on stage to get all of that. So it's really great to uh, to have that on film and just, you know, watch the first half of it with my daughter um, yesterday and just she was picking up on all these, you know, lighting and staging stuff, stuff and she's, you know, 11 now. I don't know if she's going to be like a, you know, theater kid or not, but I just think, I'm just thinking of like theater kids having the opportunity to like study the show in that detail. I don't think it's like an amazing show in terms of like as a work of theater. Like I don't think the direction or the staging is particularly interesting, but those performances, like just to be able to study those up close um, in this detail is really just extraordinary. And I'm so glad that like not everybody, but a great many people now have the chance to do that. Yeah, one example of that that I noticed, Sam, is just little little performance details that you wouldn't have been able to see, even sitting pretty close in the theater. I think like the fact that as Lafayette, when David Diggs takes a drink from his goblet, he always has his pinky up just to be French. It's oh, yeah. <laughs> so good. Just tiny details like that. Rachel, did you have did you have something that you noticed in seeing that translation? As a former member of the Tumblr Hamilton community, there's actually God bless. I love it. Like, so much. <laughs> Um, I'm really revealing a lot about myself right now, but there's like actually like it's full of theater kids who have like bootleg copies. Sorry, Lynn, bootleg copies of like this play. So there's actually a lot of talk about staging and lighting. And so I also did not have great seats when I went to go see it because I bought it on an intern salary. And so there were things that I was looking for. There's like the dance when they're like singing this like the reprise when they're all drunk after Hamilton gets like married. <laughs> oh, Dana's gone. <laughs> oh, bye Dana. <laughs> oh, no. But there's also this part when Philip dies where Eliza pulls her hand away from Hamilton. And I think that's something you don't see when you're like really far back. And it also makes when she like mm-hmm. grabs her hand in the next scene, like just mean a lot more mm-hmm. and yeah, so I was actually, I was grateful for it. As a film, I was, I don't know, when you hear a soundtrack too many times, watching something on screen after you've heard it so many times, you kind of start tuning out visually, even because you know what's going to happen, even if you haven't necessarily seen it that close. So I can't say I watch this like super closely. I really enjoy being able to see everyone's expressions. And I really think that it gave a lot to the because you know you don't see that even when they're acting for the raptors you're like i don't really see what they're doing like all these smirks mm-hmm. like you can see in the way that david Diggs moves that like he's an actual rapper like just the way that he talks yeah. like those things that you just don't notice obviously i paid a lot more attention to david Diggs than anyone else on stage because <laughs> <laughs> he's wonderful 
He's wonderful. I, a dancer. I mean, he just tells his his character through his body so much, right? I mean, his entrance as Thomas Jefferson at the beginning of Act Two is, I think, one of the mm -hmm. high points of the play, and it all has to do with his his way of moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This movie was, I mean, shot I think probably like over a year after they recorded the you know the cast album that we all or everyone except Rebecca has committed to memory, um, and just like getting a sense of how, I mean, the performances in a studio and on stage are gonna be different anyway, because people are kind of like gasping for breath and doing the choreography and everything else. Um, but just to hear, you know, how differently they're playing the roles, how differently they're hitting different lines, like a year later is just like a whole, there's a whole like, you know, term paper in that. Definitely, having seen it in Chicago with a completely different cast, I think that like, it's so different. I've been saying different a lot, but like just seeing it with a different like singing with a different cast, I think you real one of the things I realized is that Hamilton is supposed to be sexy, which you Lynn Manuel Miranda is the opposite of sexy. I'm so sorry. <laughs> that didn't, that didn't work for me at all. It didn't work for me at all. <laughs> I have something to say there, which is that both times I saw it was was pretty much the original cast, almost everybody, except both times well, he is part of the original cast, but both times it was Javier Munoz who was yes, you wouldn't yes. even call him the understudy. He was the other co Hamilton from the beginning mm -hmm. of the conception along with Lynn. And I just happened to hit two nights that was Javier. So to me he was Hamilton. And he's a much more kind of virile performer. You know, he's he's completely different. He he looks they look a bit alike on stage, but he's much more um I don't know how to describe it, like aggressive and not as sort of ingratiating as, as Lin-Manuel. So even though I was used to hearing Lin on the cast album, and I'm really glad, of course, that I got to see it with the guy who made the whole thing, um, I can see how, especially in the Reynolds pamphlet and, you know, the sex stuff in the second half, how Javier is, is better suited for the role. But that's an interesting question. Let's just float the question of Lin really quickly as a performer of his own material. I mean, I think that we can all agree, maybe even Rebecca, who's not a fan of the whole project, that like, it's a, it's a kind of extraordinary verbal work and musical work that he's created, right? But is he is he in a Ben Affleck situation where he should not be performing in his own uh, material? Step back from the play. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Lynn is the best singer or rapper. I think that's very clear. Um, I do think there's something about the person who's writing it performing it, but, and I don't think I would have necessarily known that had I not seen like the Chicago cast, like Miguel Cervantes as Hamilton made the character a lot more legible. When you watch Hamilton with Lynn, you're kind of like, that's Lynn. You're not like, that's Hamilton. Like mm -hmm. I look at him and I'm like, oh, this is the guy who sang the Moana soundtrack, you know? <laughs> he has such a distinctive voice that you can't, and like look that you can't quite separate Lynn's persona from Hamilton, the character. I'm, I'm glad that he's not doing it anymore. <laughs> right, I think I was I was talking about this just like on Twitter the other day and I feel like Lin-Manuel Miranda is not like, if he were not the writer of the show and you were casting for that role, you would never cast him. He would not, probably not even get a callback. Um, and I don't know that I'd want to see him like play the lead in anything that he didn't write. I mean, I think he's a very like charismatic person in a lot of ways, but like having seen mm -hmm. him now in, you know, Mary Poppins returns, stuff like that. Like it's it's not like it's not that good <laughs> stuff, you know. Um, I think there is something inevitable, you know, I mean, you're to read through and, and you know, this is a story about a writer with the writer, person who wrote it playing the role. I mean, there is just something in that, you know, and I think he embodies that. Um, he uses the word scrappy to describe him a lot. And there is something very kind of scrappy about like if he were 
let's say more obviously sexy or, you know, better singer or rapper, that scrappy quality kind of might not be there, you know, and I think he has a couple, um, he's very good at like the choked up voice. Like I think, he, you know, there's a couple like powerful tricks that he has and that's one of them. And he uses that, like that, that, it, that like it's quiet uptown, you know, stuck in the throat, but it's like that really works like gangbusters. But yeah, I do wonder just, and Rachel, you can speak to this. I mean, did like, does this show even work with a whole other cast? Because like, I can't, I mean, I can't imagine anybody other than Debbie Diggs playing Jefferson. I can't imagine yeah. not being like taking that role and not being completely terrified of it. Like that just seems impossible <laughs> to me. I, I'm well aware that many people have, I just can't imagine it. I can say that it does work. The guy who played Jefferson in Chicago was amazing. I was also curious having, like going to see it. I was like, am I even gonna like this? Now that it's not Debbie Diggs. I feel like we all just love Debbie Diggs, <laughs> but I did indeed still love it. <laughs> I mean, as you were saying, it is also, it's a, it's a great launching ground for, for young actors of color. And I know my sister who saw it with the San Francisco cast said that she thought the guy who played Washington, I mean, she loves Chris Jackson on the, on the cast album, mm. but she was saying that that guy was every bit as good and was possibly a, a more technically advanced singer. I mean, it just seems exciting to me that there's all these companies doing it this all over the world, right? With different people interpreting the roles in different ways. I will say that this, this struck me sometimes, and here's, this is more a critique for, for Tommy Kale than for the show as a director, but I thought that it was sometimes trying to be cinematic a little bit too hard, that it was so afraid of being a mm -hmm. stiff proscenium play stuck on the stage with one camera angle on it, that the camera was sometimes cutting on action that I didn't want it to cut on, showing close-ups mm -hmm. when I would have rather seen the whole stage. There was a Busby Berkeley moment, at least one, where the camera was way up at the top at the ceiling, you know, watching the kind of shapes <laughs> of dancers arrange themselves. And moments like that sort of took me out of it. I would have preferred erring on the side of staginess to going too far into the realm of, you know, we're directing a, a basketball game, you know, promo trailer or something like that, where like the action is so stressed that you don't, you don't sort of see the, the whole shape of what's happening on stage. I wonder about that because I feel like as a non-theater person, I needed that stuff. <laughs> like I needed to feel like I could see what was happening a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it was, but, and it was skillfully done in the sense that, you know, you're, you're always looking at the person who the action is centering on at that moment. But yeah. sometimes I, did, I didn't want to see just that face necessarily. It was interesting, like I was reading up on the production today and apparently, because they had, I mean, they shot this movie in 2016. They finished editing it in 2018 and then were kind of, you know, tinkering a bit. And eventually, as I said, we're going to release it next year. But, you know, it's been finished like a couple of times and uh, Tommy Kale apparently watch, I think it was Fosse Verdon, which Lin-Manuel Miranda like executive produced and played a small, he played Bob Fosse for like five seconds in that. But apparently that, um, a lot of those showier kind of Busby Berkeley moments and the more frenetic cutting this came out of him watching Fosse Verdon and maybe some Bob Fosse movies as well. But those were all like recent additions. They weren't sort of part of the original plan of how it was going to be cut together. That's interesting. From the point of view of a person who uh, is like a relative newbie, I want to ask about the sort of like the informational aspect of this. So like beyond the question of like, is it accurate or even like, is it politically progressive? Is <laughs> just like, did you understand what was going on? I feel like there's just so much uh, like historical information poured into, into things. And at times I felt like that was, again, as a newbie, like as a person who's not absorbed in the soundtrack the same way that you guys are, I felt like I just was missing a lot of stuff. And, I, and so many times I just was like, I'd rather just read the book. Like, can, can I just have like a story about like a bunch of charismatic young people who have a rebellion, which is basically what it is. And then 
like have love affairs and intrigues? And then can I read a separate book about the American Revolution and the Constitutional Convention? Because <laughs> like, I don't, I'm like, it's like a lot of it is kind of past me. And I wonder if you guys ever felt that at the beginning when you first had encountered this piece of intellectual property and whether that went away once you became steeped in it. Um, do you, do you mean actually like, lyrically, Rebecca? Do you mean that like you were, because I mean, I'm sure this was true the first time I heard it, that you were having a, tr a problem just keeping up with all the words coming at you? Yeah, keeping up with the words, but also keeping up with what's conveyed in the parts of the plot that are not about like the personal conflicts between the people, but are about the stakes of the founding of the nation and the different arguments that people are having. I felt ungrounded in a lot of that stuff, um, despite knowing like a little bit of it from other historical reading. <laughs> I wondered this a lot. I mean, historians aside, I wondered this a lot on first seeing it. Is just how how would this strike someone who had no familiarity with the material? Sorry, Sam, I didn't mean to talk over you. Go ahead. No, that's okay. I mean, I was just going to say, like, the banking stuff lost me, but I think probably yeah, if example. I read a book about it, it would still, I would still not get it. So I'm just capable <laughs> yeah. of understanding that stuff. Well, I mean, there's also the other thing where people who have read a lot of books about that stuff are like, oh, it gets it wrong in this way, in this way, in this way. And so maybe, you know. Maybe it's better just to have it wash over me and not think about it too hard. But it did like sometimes irritate me trying to catch it and trying to incorporate that sort of like chewier historical part of it with the more personal parts. Yeah, the show asks a lot from the viewer in that way, which makes it somewhat yeah. surprising to me that it became this pop smash hit and that, you know, eight-year-old kids love it and stuff. Yeah. Because huge parts of it are about things like, oh, well, should the government assume the debts of the states and things like that that are yeah. you know, pretty dry historical concepts. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, so, Rachel, you said that you started liking it when you were 19. Did it make you slash your Tumblr Hamilton fandom friends <laughs> want to <laughs> know more about that that stuff? Or what what kinds of interest in the history did you guys have from it? Yeah, I will say I was like, I didn't make fandom friends. I'm a lurker in fandom. Like I very rarely okay. make friends just because everyone else gets like a little bit like far past my enthusiasm level. And I'm like, I can't uh, like, they still own slaves. Like I'm still black. Like you can't, yeah. I can't be on the same level. But I think that, it never made me like want to read the biography, for example. Like I never really wanted to read beyond what was happening. But I will say that there were certain things that like you get kind of like indoctrinated into as someone who goes to school in in America that I didn't really understand. Like I mean, for the longest time, I didn't quite understand why Washington left after two terms. I was like, what's the point? FDR was here for four terms. And then I think I understood more about like the nation needing to move on beyond like this charismatic leader. I don't understand, still don't understand the treasury stuff. <laughs> I think the, a musical that made me actually want to learn more about the time period, and it's possibly just because I've, you grow up listening to American history, but like, for example, Les Mis, like when I've read that or like watched that for the first time, I was like, oh, I want to know more about this, like, small rebellion before like the big rebellion <laughs> like what's going on here mm -hmm. like we're the actual best like what's going we're the barricade boys so i won't say this play made me want to dive deeper into the revolutionary war but i will say it, it made me understand some minor things a bit better hmm. i would not teach this as a like in, <laughs> in a class well i wonder if anyone's done that i mean it'll be interesting to try to uh, but it seems also seems pedagogically exhausting because you just be like trying to be cool by being like, we're going to. We're going to. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. And there's a point at which you sort of be like, well, you know, this isn't historically represent, like, you know, accurately represent Hamilton's, you know, positions on like 
national debt and credit. And it's like, well, also none of these people were black and they didn't rap. Like, I mean, if you want to, right. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's very clearly telling you that this is not accurate. Like from the second, like Aaron Burr steps on stage, you know, if you don't know at that point, it's been funny in the last week to see a lot of the critiques that I've sort of felt got completely exhausted like five years ago. Like I know. We're going to do it now. And so there's like, oh, this is like bad history. And Lin-Manuel can't sing. And one of them is like, oh, well, this is bad rap. You know, I, I don't like this because I'm a hip hop fan. And I've really, and it's like, well, it's not, you know, it's a hip hop musical, but like both of those words are important. Like this is like Saraya McDonald was tweeting something like very smart about this, where she was saying like, this is kind of a musical that like, just adds hip hop to the great American songbook, you know? So there's like, you know, boogie woogie and ballads and kind of neoclassical and all this other stuff and hip hop just like works its way in there. So it's, you know, a musicalized version of, of hip hop. Like no one, you know, apart from David Diggs, like these people, these are not like, you know, rappers that they've like cast in this. Some of them are, you know, more proficient than it than others, but the version of this, it was going to be like an actual like hip hop mixtape, which is supposedly what like Lynn was working on at first is like a little mm-hmm. horrific to think about, yeah. um, you know, and, and that's like this, you know, that was like, if you actually have like a rap album where people are talking about like, you know, the battle of Yorktown or whatever, that would be an utter nightmare. So it's just in this context of a theatrical musical that just where that's one of the elements that comes in, I think it's like, I don't know, that's, I, that it makes sense that way at least. Yeah. I feel like it's not good if, like it's kind of a trifecta of like history, hip hop, musical. And if you take it like any of those three things separately, it sucks at doing that one thing separately. <laughs> like combined, it's a phenomenal product. <laughs> you like, make an excellent point. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like, I'm not gonna, it's, I'm not gonna teach this as history. Like this is not the great example of hip hop. Okay, it's a, it's a good musical. So like it's fine to like doing that, but like any other, I'm not gonna like the best of what it could be and i don't really care whether or not it's accurate in a way because i mean i i just i kind of give up on that kind of mode of critiquing historical entertainment but i do think that it's riding on the idea of historical accuracy in a way like or not accuracy but like historicness i guess (laughs) like it's Mm -hmm. um if it's okay to bring in this question we have a, a viewer question from a Buzz Anderson who asks, I agree it was a good musical, but why did the world go nuts over it? <laughs> Which it's the question I really like. And I think that that, um, like, that quality of like, you're getting history with this, like a wholesomeness that allows it to be like a thing that goes to the White House and that Obama gives like props to, but is also, I mean, you wouldn't have that if it wasn't trying to be like in some way a historical thing. I don't know. So in some ways it tries to have it both ways, both like be a historical thing, but also be like self-consciously like, no, obviously this isn't, this isn't real. But what do you guys think about that question? Why do you think the world went nuts over it? I can't remember who said this. It was either Laura Michelle Jackson or Saraya mm-hmm. McDonald, or I saw it on Twitter, but <laughs> <laughs> it kind of sums up the Obama administration. Like it's kind of the defining product of the Obama administration. And it came at the end of that administration. And I think it kind of fully summed up what so many people loved about Obama, which is this kind of symbolic progressiveness that if you scratch the surface a little bit, you're like, well, maybe not. I think that it kind of, like there's a hope there and a way in which that it allowed people to claim 
a history that they were a part of, but never felt a part of. I think that's why, for people who look like me anyway, I think that's why <laughs> it got really popular. Like, I think there are just like a lot of people who never felt like they were in American history in any like defining way, just like they never felt like they could be president. And then you see Obama and you see Hamilton and you're like, these things are accessible. And so I think in terms of an entry point <laughs> of like progressiveness, if that's what it is, like you should read a little bit more beyond that. But I think that for what it was, it gave a lot of people hope. It gave like a lot of people just like a space to see themselves. Like it's kind of the best yeah. definition of like representational politics and those politics have issues with them, but it's a very great example of what it is. Yeah, like as with Obama and especially if we found like now as the, you know, the rosy glow of his presidency has kind of worn off. I mean, you, you realize like all presidents kind of, he seems like, you know, still seems to me like maybe the best like actual person to hold the office since I've been alive. But like he did terrible things because like all presidents do terrible things. He like, you know, dropped, you know, it's not like drum strikes on funerals and stuff like there's no, you apparently can't occupy that office without doing like something awful. Um, so yes, yeah, so you scratch the surface of like any of these people in this play and they're like all have done something terrible somewhere, but you know, it, it is flush with the optimism like of that era as, as Rachel was saying. And, and yeah. inevitably, like, if you look at that a few years later, like, well, you know, maybe we, we were overdid it a little bit. Like we thought things were like better and changing and that's like, Oh, and then, and then they got like much worse. So, <laughs> you know, you just sort of look yeah. at it like, you know, smiling picture of yourself in college when you don't know like what's going to hit you. <laughs> after you graduate. Me in January. <laughs> Maybe you'd end up teaching it in a class as like a document of the Obama era rather than like trying to teach it as a like a history book. You teach it as like a historical document. Yeah. I mean, I think like that optimism, so much of the American mythos is that this is like the greatest place in the world. Like there's just such like an inherent optimism and exceptionalism in American identity. And I think that a lot of people just never felt that. And then you kind of look at David Diggs playing Thomas Jefferson and you're like, there's like a little, a little twinge of happiness. And then you kind of examine that later. <laughs> you examine yeah. it once you the theater. Well, I feel like the utopian energy of the show is really irresistible. Actually, the actor Heath Sanders tweeted about this and had some really interesting things to say about it who is an actor of mixed race, who's always had mixed feelings about the show, but also the night of, I guess it was July 3rd, the night that it was going to premiere on Disney, was excited about it and was posting about how, you know, this show is seductive and you can't resist its seductions. Mm -hmm. And maybe you shouldn't resist its seductions, but just, you know, as you experience it, experience it critically, or at least bring that critical eye later on after you've enjoyed right. its pleasures. But because we're down to the last 10 minutes, I definitely want to talk about the ending, especially with Sam, who had a whole piece in Slate just about the ending of Hamilton and what you see in the film that you don't hear on the cast album. Um, but before that, because we, I feel like we've been a little bit dour in our treatment of it so far, and I think all the stuff we're talking about is important, but I also just want to talk about its pleasures a bit, because personally, I will say that I, in 2020, did not feel a need to to revisit Hamilton and hearing that it was coming on Disney plus made me feel not cranky toward the show, but a little cranky toward Disney plus honestly. And just, you know, trying to get us all to subscribe to, um, to, to watch their big blockbuster show. But on July 3rd, the night it premiered, I didn't watch it that night, but I was noticing people reacting to it on social media and it, including a lot of cranks who I think had really made a whole personality out of not liking Hamilton or musicals before, who unlike 
Rebecca did not resist it, who were saying, okay, I have to admit, this is really catchy, you know? And it was kind of fun to watch it vicariously seducing people and taking over mm -hmm. their pleasure center, as I think this musical's really good at doing and musicals are in general. So can each of you tell me some something in it that you loved, like a moment or a performance or a song, like something that brought you unexpected pleasure? Um, I shall start with Rebecca because she's the crank. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, sure. It's been mentioned a little bit, but the Jonathan Groff numbers as George the Third were so funny and spot on, and I had no idea he could sing like that. Like uh, it was amazing. I love, I loved every second of those parts. Yeah, that's a really, really fun part. It's a tiny part of no the show, idea. right? But but the king just has yeah. you in the palm of his hand. And I have to say, I didn't yeah. see Groff in that role. I saw Andrew Rannells as the king, and he was so damn funny. I mean, the audience was just like waiting to go home with him. He was so adorable. All right, what about you, Rachel? I mean. To be dense, obviously, is my favorite part of this entire musical. I feel like he just—he's gotten enough things, and I love being able to see him in this specific thing that like launched him into like most of our collective orbits, that guys, whatever. Yeah, I mean, I also—I love musicals. I think they're very corny and they're very earnest. And if you are a person who's like kind of averse to earnestness, in a way, it's like very hard to like sit through. But I deeply love corny things and so it just it's I love it. I love it. Yeah, it's pretty irresistible in that way. I mean I've I've seen it twice in the last week and it pretty much got me both times. What about you, Sam? Yeah, I mean you said unexpected pleasures and I feel like, you know, most of the pleasures I've gotten from it were expected just because I know the show mm -hmm. so well. But I mean one of the things I've really enjoyed is just like a little moments of not even choreography, but performance. Like there's a lot of, you know, lyrical um, musical callbacks to earlier parts in the show. Uh, people like pick up other people's lines and stuff like that. And just seeing that there's actually like little bits of, you know, choreography that come back to like when Hamilton is saying, you, you get love for it, you get hate for it, you get nothing if you wait for it. And he does like a little sort of mockery of like Leslie Odom's, you know, like amazing number that he just kind of like turns it into this complete shit talking him. And I love like those little, mm -hmm callbacks to it, which are so so kind of theatrical in nature. And again, just like getting up close to like a bunch of the performances, like this, just the sort of fierce, like, you know, intelligence of wit of, of Renee Goldsboro really was, for some reason, been really into like just the kind of swing in Chris Jackson's performance as Washington. Like he's so, mm. he's even like farther off the beat than Debate Diggs. He's just like kind of in his own universe, but always kind of comes back to home, like right when he needs to. I think it's just an extraordinary performance. Yeah, Chris Jackson. There's a moment, um, and this kind of goes back to stuff that you can see in, a, in the film version that you couldn't have seen in the play, but did you notice that Chris Jackson's first entrance as Washington, he backs onto the stage, but the camera's behind him, right? So there's this great right. little moment, almost like a, you know, just a behind the scenes standing in the wings moment where you see his fierce Washingtonian expression as he backs onto the stage rather than the back of his head, which is all you would see in the theater. I think maybe my unexpected pleasure, although I loved it in performance too, it was just something that really popped on film more um, was Philippa Sue's performance as Eliza, which is so quiet, right? I mean, it's part of her character to be quiet and reserved and her performance compared to Renee Lee Scholesbury's is less, you know, obviously she takes up less space on stage, right? And her character takes up less space, but there's just this almost very relaxed quality to her, her performance in this movie. Her singing is so effortless and so pure. She just has an incredible soprano. I think, as part of the ensemble, I had certainly appreciated her when I saw it, and, and I've always pictured her as that character, but it gave me that same feeling you were talking about with Debbie Diggs, Rachel, of just how could anyone else ever do this? Imagine replacing the Sue with Eliza. 
Um, all right, we're down to our last five minutes, and so we need to talk about the ending. This is a spoiler special. Yeah. There's not a lot to spoil in a property that people know as well as they know Hamilton. But Sam, tell us your your argument and the um, you know the questions about the ending, the fan theories too that have started to revolve around Eliza's very last mm-hmm. moment, and maybe describe for somebody who hasn't seen the show or play yet what her last moment. Right, was. there's there's a couple little moments that are in the show that did not make it to the album. Like the biggest of them that people know is sort of like the secret scene where um, Hamilton's finds out about. John Warren's death, um, which I think they cut from the album just because either it was too long or because that scene is like actually mostly spoken. But there is this one moment at the end, which I remember really shocked me when I saw it because I knew the album so well, is you know, the album gets to the end of the song um, and everybody just kind of fades out on the news, this unison note. And you assume that there's just like the lights fade out and then the, they come back up and everybody claps. And when you see it, what actually happens is that Hamilton leads Eliza to the lip of the stage. Hamilton is dead at this point, but kind of his specter leads her up there. She's mm-hmm. taken over from Burr as the narrator in that last song. She is the one who's taking over charge of his story, placing herself back in the narrative. And she goes to the lip of the stage, kind of you know looks up at something into the lights as that last note is going. And she just lets out, there's this expression on her face of just kind of like wonderment and fear. And the movie gets you like right up close. And she just lets out this kind of, gasp and that's when the lights smash to black and like Lin-Manuel has completely refused to explain it he was just tweeting today like the gasp is the gasp um <laughs> Philip Sue won't say what she's playing like sometimes you know it's this sometimes it's that sometimes it's just Philip sees the audience one of the more popular theories and there's a TikTok going around about this now is that like that's where Eliza sees the audience like it, in the in the TikTok, it's not even Hamilton leading her to the lip of the stage. It's actually Lin Manuel Miranda who has like come out of character and is showing her that like all these people have shown up to see her story. I reject that in part just because I hate the idea that the last thing this musical might do is congratulate the audience for showing up and be like the story is so important because you're here. Yeah. Um, and then, <laughs> and it, it, it may be a very you know it may be a very audience flattering work to begin with, but that's just like too much. My feeling is, I mean, if you watch particularly the blocking of that scene, and I keep meaning to go back and watch it, this is true in Burn as well, when she uses you um, in that last scene, um, every time she does it, she kind of looks up as if she's, and she's talking to Hamilton, who's dead, you know, to his spirit or whatever, and she's kind of looking up into the rafters, and that's where she goes back at the end. So it's like her reunion with him. I don't know if it's necessarily the afterlife. I mean, it's a, it's a show that's kind of fit, threaded through with, you know, biblical themes and scriptural quotes, but they're mostly, you know, related to Burr um, because his grandfather was a sort of extremely renowned uh, preacher. But to me, there's also just the idea that like you keep your loved ones alive by like telling their story. You know, that idea that, you know, the moment you die is the time, the last, the last time someone says your name and that by, you know, basically kind of curating his legacy that she was keeping their relationship alive. I think there's something really powerful in that. And there is no gasp on the cast album. Did they, did, did any of them ever talk about that, about why they didn't choose to include that moment in the cast? I album? don't think they have to, it would be a really weird thing. Like on a recording, if you can't see her expression, it's just be like, what is that? Right. Um, so it's, I think it's better to just fade out on the record. But it is such a transcendent moment of the show. And I remember the first time seeing it on stage being incredibly impressed with the ambiguity of the ending. You know, you might say that in some ways the show is a civics lesson that's hammering stuff into your head, but the end is very far from that. It just seems like this moment of transcendence that you can't really pin down. Okay, we're at the end of our hour. Do any of you have any last words or thoughts or or admonitions or warnings for people wondering if they should see Hamilton? (laughs) 
I feel like people need to get a tween to watch it with or something. I feel like my lack of a tween has seriously harmed me. <laughs> I mean, would you say specifically, any of you, would you say that it'd be a good idea to know the, the songs a little better, that you should listen through a few times to maybe not feel that confusion that Rebecca did? Mm. Yeah, I think the first time I listened to the cast album, I caught 60% of what was going on. Maybe listen to it a few times and it'll be a bit less annoying. I don't know. I feel like this is aggressively not your shit though, Rebecca. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I completely agree. I, yeah, I don't think anybody should be, I mean, Rebecca, yes, because I want to hear her as a historian talk about it, but I would not say for entertainment purposes that anyone has to go see Hamilton if they don't care about it. Then again, if you're on the fence and you're kind of like, eh, not a musical person, as I say, I've seen in my own life someone be converted from not a musical person to really yeah. loving this musical. I don't know. That's a good point. All right. I think that is our spoiler first ever live spoiler special at Slade. I'm sorry about my falling in and out of technological touch with you all, but I think I still got to hear a lot of the conversation. It was great. Thank you to everyone who tuned in. You made this live event really fun. We hope to do more with you soon. Please subscribe, if you can, to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like this show, you can, of course, tweet about it or rate it or review it in the Apple Podcast Store, which really helps people to find the show and other Slate podcasts. If you have suggestions for future spoiler specials, we do movies, we do TV shows, we do podcasts. You can send them to spoilers at slate.com. Also, we want to send a big thank you to Faith Smith, who was behind the scenes figuring out all my bizarre technical problems and helping set this all up from a tech point of view. Thanks so much. And to Britt Pulley, who also helped produce this and other Slate Live events. Our producer today was Rosemary Belson. For Sam Adams, Rachel Hampton, and Rebecca Onion, I am Dana Stevens. Thanks for listening, and we'll spoil again with you soon. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.